Our Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. And bless us, I pray, as we work and as we study. Help us in all things to grow to be more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for whose name we sake we ask it. Amen. Amen. I want to continue then this morning with a little mini-series that I've been doing. Some of you may have been to the one or two of the others, I don't know, uh, but uh, each of these uh, really stands alone or can stand independently. Uh, I chose the sort of three little epistles towards the end of the New Testament, mainly because uh, they get overlooked uh, very often. They're, too, they're short, uh, they're difficult to turn into a series, uh, and we don't know very much about them uh, in many ways, and so uh, they tend to, they tend to uh, get lost, as it were. You know, people sort of jump from one to the other, and of course, uh, as you know, uh, there's a certain contingent which can't wait to get to the book of Revelation, so um, they are uh, even more overlooked for that reason. Today, though, I want to look at this little letter of Jude, which stands out uh, in the New Testament for various reasons, uh, which I hope to uh, share with you a little bit this morning. We don't really know who Jude was. Uh, He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, is how he identifies himself. But this is not terribly helpful, uh, of course, because there were many servants of Jesus Christ, uh, and uh, it seems that just about everybody was called James, unless, of course, they were called John uh, or something like that. Uh, But uh, it doesn't really identify who he was. Uh, We generally tend to think he was probably the brother of the James who uh, was with Peter and John uh, with Jesus, but that's pure speculation. It could be anybody, really, although uh, those to whom Jude wrote presumably knew who he was talking about. Who did he write to? He said, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, he says, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. These introductions uh, to the epistles of the New Testament contain a great deal uh, that is easily overlooked because uh, it, it seems to us to be somewhat repetitive. Uh, you know, you, you begin a letter uh, today, you write, dear so-and-so, uh, and we do this so often and so regularly uh, that nobody stops to think uh, what the meaning of the word dear might be. Um, you know, you don't sort of uh, bother discussing this. It's just a form that you write uh, to. And there's a certain element of this, uh, you might say, in uh, New Testament letter writing. There's a standard way in which you approach things. Uh, and so uh, when you get to realize that, when you read through the, the, the text, uh, you can tend to overlook it. You can tend to sort of go beyond it without really uh, taking the time to examine the particular choice of words uh, that the letter writer makes. This, I think, is a pity because uh, each of these letters, uh, although addressed 
by a person of authority, in this case Jude, to a group of Christians, nevertheless approaches them uh, in a slightly different way. And what we see here being brought to the fore is, first of all, that Jude sees the people he is writing to, the Christians to whom he is writing, as men and women who have been called by God. Uh, this is their identity. This is what makes them the people that they are. They have been called by God, uh, and they have been integrated into uh, God's life and purpose. They are beloved by the Father, he says. And God, as we know, is love. Uh, God sent his Son into the world because he loved us, uh, and his Son died for us in love, and his Holy Spirit unites us to himself in that love. So it is the love of the Father that, that we see working itself out in the calling of the believer. And you and I are integrated into the life of God in this way, you see, uh, that we are not Christians by accident. Uh, we are not Christians uh, purely because uh, it's something we want to do. Uh, you know, we, we just want we figure we've got to belong to something, so we'll go along and belong to the local church, but we might as well, we could equally well uh, belong to anything else. It's not like that. Uh, that the true Christian person is somebody who knows that he or she has been called by God, that God has somehow or other come into your life, into my life, and drawn you to him. Now, this will be different, of course, from one person to the other. There isn't a standard formula that fits everybody. Uh, just as love uh, is a very varied thing. You can read about, uh, you know, how uh, one couple, for example, fell in love and how they got married and so on. That's very nice, and we read that. Uh, but uh, you, you know from your own experience um, that you are, you, you are different. I mean, you recognize the, the reality of what has happened, and you may, have share, you may share that reality in your own life, but the details, the circumstances will vary. And this we have to bear in mind. God's calling of you and God's calling of me uh, may appear to be different on the surface. Why? Because our circumstances are different, our temperament is different, uh, 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 our personality is different, our backgrounds are different. We all come from uh, in our own way, but we come to the same truth, to the same relationship, to what Jude calls our common salvation. And this is important. Because separated though we may be in time and space from the people to whom Jude was writing, we nevertheless share with them this common thing, our salvation, our relationship with God. God is not limited by our circumstances. He is not bound in time and space as we are. And so being united with him is transcending the limitations of our own uh, circumstances, uh, being united with somebody who is above and beyond all of that uh, and who, who draws us near uh, to, uh, to all men and women of every time and place who share this common uh, calling. This is who he is writing to. And he wants 
uh, mercy, as he says, mercy, peace, and love uh, to be present among them. That the reality of this union with Christ, the reality of this common salvation, he wants to see worked out in the lives of those who share it. Now, it's quite common, of course, for the writers uh, of these letters to, to say things like this, grace and peace be with you, uh, or sometimes grace, mercy, and peace. Jude here takes a different order, a different uh, set of uh, things. He says mercy, he puts mercy first, peace and love uh, be multiplied to you. Now, one of the things you have to learn uh, in uh, reading the New Testament is that things are often expressed in threes, you know, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Uh, and you have to work out uh, what you think is going on here. Because sometimes, usually, it's the first thing that, that, that is mentioned which is the most important, or which, when I say most important, I mean sets the tone, shall we say, for what follows. And what follows has to be interpreted in the light of that. Obvious example, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We understand the Son and we understand the Holy Spirit in terms of their relationship to the Father who comes first. Uh, the, the Son who's begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and from the Son uh, and so on. They are defined, if you like, in relation to the Father. The other possib another possibility, which I've just mentioned, uh, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, now there abide these three, faith, hope, and love, and then says the greatest of these is love, the three things which he mentioned are like steps building up uh, to the greatest. Uh, you see, it's a kind of build up to the greatest. So that's the third in order. Another possibility, there's all kinds of possibilities, uh, which we saw a couple of weeks ago, grace, mercy, and peace. Uh, I think uh, grace and peace are just two different words uh, for peace. I mean, the grace it comes from the Greek charin, and, uh, or charin, a greeting, and of course peace was the Hebrew uh, word shalom, uh, which is the standard form of greeting. And then mercy gets slipped into the middle, uh, like the meat in the sandwich sort of thing. Uh, and it's the, it's the thing that you have to concentrate on because it's, it's, the, it's the unusual element, uh, you see, which is slotted in the middle. So this, of course, I, I say all this because if we come to this, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. How should we read this? What is the most important element? How, do, you know, how is it structured and how should we understand it? Well, we could be here all day, of course, arguing over this, uh, but I'm going to take the most common uh, form, which is to put mercy first and interpret the others in the light of that as the one that I think is most probable. I'm not saying that this is absolutely certain. You can have other interpretations, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, this is certainly one possibility. Mercy, because mercy is at the heart of our salvation. It is because God reached out to us uh, in mercy, uh, not in justice, strict justice, 
because if he had done that, of course, he would have condemned us. Uh, none of us measures up to God's standards. Uh, and uh, if he had applied, if you like, the strict letter of the law, uh, we would have been done for completely. Instead, of course, he reaches out with something greater than this, mercy, uh, which is essentially forgiveness. You see, that God has uh, gone beyond, as it were, the strict demands of justice. He hasn't denied justice because his justice was fulfilled in the death of his son. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price, uh, the price demanded by the justice of God, but so that his mercy could be extended to us, that we have been forgiven, we have been accepted, we have been brought into the fellowship of God, uh, which is something that we have done nothing to earn and do not deserve. And this is, I think, fundamental. You see, uh, that God has done for us something which in strict logic, in strict nature, makes no sense. You see, it's why you can't earn your salvation. You can't go to God and say, Lord, what can I do, uh, you know, to, to gain eternal life? That's what the rich young ruler did. Remember him, uh, you know, and, and Jesus said, well, you keep the commandments. And he kept all of the commandments, at least he said he had. Um, and so on. I mean, it's you know, quite an impressive sort of record there. And Jesus didn't deny this. He just sort of went round it all and said, yes, well, all right, that's fine. You've done all that. Now just sell everything you have uh, and come and follow me. And he put his finger on the thing that the rich young ruler was not prepared to do. You see, the rich young ruler wanted to earn his way into heaven, uh, but Jesus pointed out uh, that he couldn't do that. And so he went away in great sorrow, realizing uh, that this was not possible. So I think the mercy of God is fundamental here. Peace comes from this. How do we have peace with God? We have peace with God because he has reached out to us in mercy. He has given us peace. He has put right the wrong that we have done, uh, he has brought to an end uh, the conflict uh, which there is between our will and his will. He has achieved reconciliation, if you like, not by some kind of uh, bargaining, uh, uh, you know, you, you take this and I'll take that, not this, uh, but by his sacrifice, by the sacrifice on the cross, he has made this possible. And then, of course, it is in that sacrifice that we see his love poured out and poured out on us. It is because of his mercy, because the peace which has come through the blood of Christ, that the love of God is made manifest in our hearts. Now, I know you can turn that all around and say, well, God began with love. It was because he loved us that he showed us mercy. Yes, you can. This can be read in different ways. But I wanted to read it in that way because I think that this is the way that is most consonant with what Jude goes on to say. Jude wanted to write a nice letter to the people. We don't know who these people were. But he wanted to write them a nice letter saying, uh, you know, we share a common salvation. Isn't that wonderful? And we're marching together into the kingdom of heaven. 
It's all good news. Unfortunately, he couldn't do that. And he says this. He regrets having to write uh, the way he does because, uh, of course, the church is faced uh, with challenges. The church is faced with problems that Jude does not want them to have, but that he has to deal with because they are there. And this, again, is very important because the Christian life is not a happy ever after situation. You know, uh, there was a time uh, when uh, movies were made like that, weren't they? I mean, you know, boy meets girl, parents object, uh, you know, they go through this and that and the other, uh, all kinds of ups and downs to sort of overcome the obstacles uh, until they finally land up in the church, they, they, they exchange rings, vows, etc., and then they go off uh, just married and live happily ever after. Now, I wonder whatever happened to those people. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, perhaps ever after didn't last that long. Um, but anyhow, uh, the, you know, the, it, it just wasn't uh, true to reality. It's what people wanted to happen, not what really happened. You know, uh, you marry for better or for worse. Uh, as we know, and better is the honeymoon, and then worse starts after that. Uh, but you just have to get used to this. You have to face this fact. And the same is, of course, true in the Christian life, uh, that to become a Christian is to have the joy of eternal salvation. Yes, it is something to rejoice in. Yes, it is something that Jude lifts up uh, as the, the basis of, of, of his whole mission and ministry, yes, but it's also a struggle. It is a spiritual warfare. And we need to understand this because many people go wrong in their spiritual experience because they don't realize this. You see, they think, well, I became a Christian, I accepted Christ, uh, you know, I, I, I was walking uh, in, in great joy and peace and so on, and then all kinds of troubles seem to happen. Why? Uh, you know, why as a Christian am I faced uh, with these difficulties? Why do I have to struggle, uh, you know, when I have Christ in my heart? Well, this is part of growing up. Uh, we're told in the scriptures that you must be born again. You start again as a baby in Christ. And of course, when you are a baby, uh, I mean, uh, that's the best time of your life. I mean, you don't realize it at the time, of course. Uh, but, you know, everybody oohs and ahs all over you. I mean, what for? You know, you haven't done anything. It's kind of like somebody I know who won the Nobel Peace Prize when he hadn't done anything to deserve it, you know. Um, you, kind of, you kind of think, why? Uh, and, uh, you, you know, you get this sort of thing. And... Uh, but that's but that's wonderful. You see, no one has any has a bad word to say about a baby, and then the baby starts to walk, and everything that is precious in your house starts to rise a little higher. You know, you don't leave things on the floor anymore. You just put it up a little bit more, and you realize that as the child develops and and uh, as his potential grows and manifests itself, uh, that there's a downside to this. <laughs> You know, it's wonderful to see. You know, you can't wait till the child walks, you know. And then when they start walking, you have to tie them up. You know how it is. I mean, 
it's just the way it goes. And uh, because, of course, not because there's anything bad or wrong about this, but because this is part of the growth uh, process. This is what you have to go through to grow up. And we as Christians are the same. We have to face new challenges in life. Uh, these things are sent to try us, says the, the, the scriptures, so that the, 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 the uh, solidity and truth and value of our faith will be revealed. So we mustn't be uh, surprised or ashamed or worried if these things come. There's nothing wrong with being tempted. Jesus was tempted. The problem is giving in to temptation. You see, uh, we will be tempted through our lives. We will be tested in different ways, and we need to face up to this. So Jude faces this problem realistically. What is the trouble? Well, the trouble is, he says, certain people have crept in unnoticed, that is, into the church, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Why does this happen? I don't know. Nobody knows. Ultimately, the origins of evil are a mystery. You see, what provokes people to do this? There's really no telling. And yet, in our experience, we know uh, that if things are going well, uh, if there's success on the horizon, there will be people out there uh, who, who want to attack it. There will be people out there who cannot abide this. You know, uh, They want to, to drag, drag it down. They want to bring it to an end. Why, why would you want to do this? You, see, you might say, well, jealousy perhaps, or uh, you know, just the inability to, to, to deal with this kind. I don't know. I mean, uh, different things uh, come in, but we know it as a fact. We see it uh, at work in people's lives. You know, we see it when people are successful at something. I mean, they're congratulated and everything else. And then just as the sort of uh, excitement dies down, somebody turns around and say, says something like, Oh, well, of course, you're hardly surprised, are you? I mean, you know, if I had their money or I had their background or I had their connections or whatever, I could do the same. I mean, it's not as wonderful as it appears. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, you see these, the, the, this, this person who has achieved something being pulled down uh, in some way or other. We don't like this. Ultimately, as I say, it's, it's impossible for us to say why we are like this. Now, uh, you know, in, in, I mean, I know this is true, and there's this evil thing in me, uh, there's this evil thing in you, uh, which will come out in different ways. What we can say, and what Jude tells us, is that this is something which is more than just human. We are dealing here with a spiritual problem. And it's a spiritual problem which Jude brings out as something which originates in the spiritual world. He deals with the figure of Satan. You see, look what he says here. He says, uh, he said, when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. What's all that about? 
you see. Uh, this story, of course, is not in the Old Testament. Jude knew uh, that it was a legend. It was a Jewish legend that was told. But like most legends, it contains within it a spiritual truth. Uh, you see, Michael, the archangel, is God's representative, God's uh, commander-in-chief, if you like, the one to whom he delegates uh, the spiritual warfare. Uh, and of course, the devil, uh, we gather from this uh, and from other things in scripture, was uh, originally uh, probably someone of a similar kind, uh, an archangel, something like that, created by God, who nevertheless rebelled, who wanted to be God himself. And this, it would seem, is the uh, is the root of evil. You see, uh, this uh, Satan, uh, who was given great glory originally, you see, uh, great responsibility uh, in the kingdom uh, of God, but who wasn't content with this. Why not? We don't know. But he rebelled against this. And of course, in rebelling against this, dragged not only many of his fellow angels down, this is what uh, Jude says, he said, the angels who did not stay within their position of authority, but left their dwelling uh, and are kept in eternal chains. You see, Satan dragged these angels down with him, but retained uh, the power uh, with which, which he received from his creation. I mean, Satan does not cease to be a spiritual being. And he is capable of intruding, if you like, of invading uh, the, the spiritual world, including your life and mine. And this is what he did, of course, in the Garden of Eden, that Adam and Eve fell away from God, not because of, they decided to do this of their own free will, they didn't wake up one morning and say, well, we're bored today. Uh, you know, what are we going to do now? Uh, let's disobey God and see what happens. It, it wasn't like that. They were tempted away from God. And how were they tempted? They were tempted because Satan said to Eve, she said, don't you want to be like God? I'll tell you how. If you eat the fruit of that tree over there, uh, you know, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, you'll become like God. Surely that's a good thing. But Eve, you see, she knew better. She said, no, 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 we were told not to do that. See, God said we were to do that. And so Satan sort of looks at her and says, well, yes, it's a bit, you know, maybe God's trying to hide something from you, you see, keeping from you something that, that you really ought to have. Uh, which is the knowledge of good and evil. Anyway, uh, you know, we can see in the story how the resistance is broken down, how Eve gives it to Adam, to, tells Adam to, to share in this, and how they do this. And they realize, you see, once they have, have overstepped the mark, that yes, indeed, they got what they asked for, the knowledge of good and evil. And in that sense, it was true that they had become like God. God says this himself. You read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, God says to the angels, said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good from evil. So what are we going to do with him? We can't allow this to continue. And so it's because of this, of course, that Adam and Eve are shut out of the garden. They're cut off from the tree of life. Uh, they cannot 
fully participate in the promises that God had held out for them in the beginning. And that is how, of course, evil has come into the world. It also helps explain, I think, another reason why you can't save yourself by your own efforts. Because even if you do all the right things uh, that there are to do, the nature of what is wrong is deeper than anything that we have control over. You see, even if every single person on earth became a Christian, there would still be evil because evil resides in these spiritual powers, you see, which are greater than we are. This is why even in the church, you see, even in a body of Christians, evil is still present because evil is bigger than we are. Now, fortunately, of course, the good news is that God is bigger still. All right, we'll come to that in a minute. But right now, we have to just face this fact that evil is bigger than we are. And here we see Michael and Satan fighting over the body of Moses. Well, what exactly were they doing? Uh, of course, this is not a historical event. I mean, you can't imagine Moses sort of lying there on the ground and Michael and Satan saying, I want him in my cemetery. No, I want him cremated. I'll take him. You know, it's obviously not like that. But I must confess, I was re reading this over yesterday uh, while other things were going on. I won't say what. Uh, but um, uh, I was just reading over uh, and thinking to myself, you know, I wonder whether this happened in Tuscaloosa. <laughs> Has anyone ever noticed where the cemetery is in Tuscaloosa? Have you noticed this? It backs up right onto the stadium. So you can be thrown out of your seat straight into your grave. <laughs> And I can just picture, you know, Michael and Satan sort of arguing, you know, does he deserve to be buried on holy ground? You know, does he deserve to spend an eternity, uh, you know, watching Alabama win? Um, and so on. Uh, you don't know. As this suddenly went through my mind. I, I won't say why. It just hit me yesterday that, the, you know, this is sort of current events and so on. Um, but... Uh, but, but clearly this is not what we're talking about here. It seems to me that the body of Moses refers to Moses' legacy, which is the law, the law of God. The law of God, which is good, which is holy, which is right, uh, which is the picture that God gives to his people of what he requires of them. But Moses and Satan are fighting over this because what are you going to do with the law? You see, and this was the problem that the Jews faced. This was the issue, if you like, in the early church. I mean, who keeps the law? How can the law be kept? Does the law become an agent of destruction, an agent of deception, because it is being misused, uh, being perverted and, and, and so on, being held up to offer something which it cannot offer? You see, to be a way of salvation when it cannot be. It can only be a way of condemnation. Is this what's happening? I think that's probably what lies behind this legend. And so we see this, you see, and, and Jude draws attention to this. You cannot deal with evil in this way. 
Rather, it will spread. You see, and he draws a, a pretty lurid picture, referring back to people in the, the Old Testament and so on, people in various Jewish legends uh, who uh, had lost the way, who had fallen away from God because of this, because they had followed after uh, their own dreams, as he said. You know, their own imaginings. They had these, these, these ideas in their head that were going to lead them everywhere. How does this happen? Well, again, I don't know. But I do know that people dream. You know, uh, uh, people dream and they try to turn their dreams into reality. Uh, again, I was thinking, just thinking this through, so I think, well, you know, can I find an example of this? And I hate to say it, but the name that came uh, to my mind of somebody like this, uh, you know, was Richard Scrooge. Remember him? <laughs> I mean, there was a time, I mean, he wanted to be famous. He wanted to be, you know, known everywhere, the great philanthropist and so on. And there was a time when you couldn't go around Birmingham without bumping into him. Not personally, but his name was everywhere. <coughs> You know, it was kind of, it's like going to Walmart and trying to buy something that wasn't made in China. Uh, you know, it's hard to do. Well, driving around Birmingham and finding, you know, not running into the name of Scrooge was kind of difficult at one stage, remember? And then, of course, the dream all burst, the bubble burst, and everybody had egg on their faces, and people were running around scraping and scratching the name off and pretending they never heard of this person. And I suddenly thought to myself, you know, what a parable, what a lesson to us of where your dreams can lead. You know, if you build on fantasy, uh, if you imagine you can create a world of your own, and let's face it, virtually everybody in the entertainment industry is like this. They more or less have to be like that in order to succeed. And this comes over to us as something desirable. You know, have a dream and make it real in your life. But if you get away from, from reality, if you get away from the truth, uh, if you lie to yourself in trying to fulfill your dreams, then you will come sooner or later as badly unstuck as those who have gone before, as Balaam and these various other people who are mentioned here. You see, they, they fell apart. It didn't work because their dreams collapsed around them. We can't build on this. We have to build on reality. And what is the reality? The reality is that if our enemies are stronger than we are, because they are spiritual powers over which we have no control. Our helper, our savior, our support is greater still. Because the spiritual enemies that we have are creatures. They were made by God. They rebelled against him, but they were made by God. And one day they will be judged by God and they will be punished by God and they will cease to exist, in, at least in the form uh, that we know them. We have been rescued from the, them because we have been united to the one who is greater still. 
we cannot fight these evil things that come into our lives in our own strength. It's useless to try. Well, I would say useless to try, but you're not going to get anywhere. You know, you can have your 10-point program uh, of things you're going to do, your daily exercises, uh, and so on, and this is going to help you get out of that. Well, it may not be a bad thing. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, a bad thing, but it's not going to solve the problem ultimately because only by being united to the Savior, only by being united to the Creator, only by being united to the one who is more powerful than any enemy that we can face, have we any hope of overcoming the forces which are ranged against us. And this is how Jude ends. You see, he has a lot of very unpleasant things to say. But look how he comes to an end. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, you see, keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless, you see, not perfect, but blameless, you see, before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. To be saved is to be focused on God. To be protected is to be focused on God. To know that you can walk through a world of temptation and danger and challenge and yet come out at the other end unscathed. You see, come out at the other end blameless in the sight of God is to focus on him. We're not perfect. We're not strong. Uh, we haven't got anything to offer to him. All we have is that union, uh, that union which he has chosen, you see, that love which he has poured into our hearts, uh, that uh, mercy uh, which he has given to us, that peace which passes understanding. And this is what I want to leave with you this morning. Advent is the beginning of a new year, a new page turned in the Christian life. And my hope and my prayer for you and for me today uh, is that we will take this day, take this time uh, to reflect and to begin again, to start afresh, to recognize uh, that uh, the sins of the past have been paid for, uh, that the failings uh, of the past have been taken away, uh, and that God has come into our life, that he will give us the strength to face whatever challenges may be coming in the days ahead. I can't promise you an easy life. There ain't no such thing. You know, and if you have an easy life, then you've got a problem. It's because nobody's bothering with you. Uh, you know, you're just being left al uh, alone to sort of wither away in the corner somewhere. No, if you are a soldier of Christ, you will be in the front line of attack. You will be in the battle. Uh, it's a great place to be. Not fun, I'm not saying that, but it's a place where you are meant to be because everything that you are prepared for, everything that you have been trained to do, you can exercise. You can uh, fulfill your calling as a good soldier does by fighting 
the spiritual battles uh, which come your way. And I hope and pray that in the year ahead uh, that will be true of you. Pray for me that that will be true of me because we're all in the same battle together. It's our common salvation. And it's this that makes Jude real in our lives today. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we've had together now. And Lord, I pray that you would send us out in the joy of your Holy Spirit, that we may be filled with the love of God coming to us in Jesus Christ, and that we might honor you in all that we think, in all that we say, and in all that we do. For his name's sake we ask it. Amen. Amen.